0: As technology, healthcare, and business continue to evolve at a rapid pace, trailblazers all over the globe are boldly stepping forward to change things for the better. They're pushing past boundaries in every area and charting a new path forward. There's no denying the world as we know it is in the midst of an epic transformation. Welcome to Present Day Pioneers, the podcast exploring the alternative models that are reshaping the way our society thinks, feels, and behaves. I'm your host, Jackson Bokenfor from Patino Payments. Thanks for joining me on this fascinating journey as we catch a glimpse of what the future holds. Now, let's get into the episode. The way we manage our money is fundamentally different than it was even a decade ago, and it's only going to continue evolving as the landscape shifts. With the old way of doing things on the outs, traditional banks are being forced to adapt to the new world order, which will ultimately serve to benefit the average consumer in the long run. Today's episode is all about the changes happening globally in the world of finance and banking. I'm sitting down with someone who knows all about the transformations happening in the banking space today. Al Savan is the head of open banking at Axway and the host of the Mr. Open Banking podcast. As a global open banking expert, Ale always has his finger on the pulse of what's happening next in this rapidly evolving space. The man is a legend. I'm confident you'll learn at least a thing or two about the open banking revolution happening worldwide from today's episode. Enjoy! Mr. A.L. Savan, an absolute honor to have you on the show. Uh, When I first started getting interested in banking, I actually went on Spotify and looked up banking, and your podcast was the first one to come up. So I listened to it, and it was a ton of fun to listen to. So it's an honor to have you on, man.
1: My pleasure. Thank you so much for the compliments.
0: And just for anybody listening, I would highly recommend go checking it out. It's Mr. Open Banking. They touch on all the topics of open banking that we're about to jump into here. And to begin the podcast, I was wondering if you could share a bit about your career background and give us a little summary
1: of Axway. Sure. I've been in IT for over 25 years. I really got my start at the beginning of the internet. And I started, uh, like a lot of other entrepreneurs, in my parents' basement, uh, trying to make a go of it based on early internet technologies. A little later in my career, I ended up joining CIBC, a major Canadian bank, where I was a part of the enterprise architecture practice, and I learned a ton about what it means to run real systems and solve real problems, and how to tell stories about IT that take maybe complicated things and present them in a, in a simplified way that, that is easier to understand than, than some IT jargon. In my travels at CIBC, I ultimately discovered Open Banking. We're gonna talk about that a little later, I guess. When I did, I sort of fell in love with the whole idea and decided I needed to dedicate my career to it. So ultimately, on very good terms, I decided to leave CIBC, started the Mr. Open Banking podcast, and ultimately ended up at Axway. Axway is a player in enterprise integration. We've been at it for over 20 years and can manage and govern and integrate just about any system under the sun, from the old to the new. So I was very excited by Axway's long pedigree in integration, very much similar to my own pedigree in integration. What I aim to bring to the company is a sharpened focus on the open banking space. In the year and a half since I joined Axway as head of open banking, We've really succeeded in raising our game in open banking, really culminating with the development of a packaged open banking solution, which we've been selling in Brazil for the last uh, quarter to great success.
0: And so just to bring it back, we've heard the word about, I don't know,
1: five or six times now. What exactly is open banking? Ah, uh, A classic question. And if I'm going to call myself Mr. Open Banking, I should probably have an answer. So, so I do. And, and it, It's funny, this question, it seems like a softball, but even years into this movement that's happening all around the world, there's still debate around this definition. What exactly is open banking? So let me try and offer one. A lot of banks out there think, well, I do APIs, these things called APIs that are sort of like the glue that lets different pieces of software talk to each other and, and different systems from different companies talk to each other. But that's not enough to do open banking, banks have been doing these API things for years and years. Over the last decade or so, a lot of banks have taken a major step towards open banking by introducing developer portals. This, most people now know what a portal is, right? It's a special kind of website that lets you use some sort of service. And what these portals from banks let you do is start using their APIs. Without a special agreement, without a special partnership or project, you can just go to their website and start using their APIs. This is a big step, but it's not really open banking. And the reason it's not open banking is because open banking introduces a very important concept, and that concept is standardization. The idea that no matter which bank or which fintech in the universe of financial services that you're talking to... When you want to get information about an account, when you want to get a list of transactions, when you want to move money around, it works the same way, no matter which institution you're dealing with. That is the power of open banking. Because once you put that standard in place, well, now you get network effects, hyper growth, and a whole world of innovation that simply wouldn't be possible before that standard. Think internet standards like HTTP or FTP that we all use every single day that make up the fabric of the internet, but they are open and no one owns them and everyone can use them. That's the power of open banking, the notion of a secure, open, common standard for the secure exchange of financial data.
0: Super cool. So in your books, APIs have been around for quite some time, but open banking in its true essence is the standardization.
1: That is correct. Now, a lot of folks will jump on this and say, you didn't say regulation, you didn't say data ownership. And these are of course, fascinating aspects of open banking. Very much the heart and soul of open banking is this idea that consumers own their own data. But fundamentally, it begins with this common open shared standard. And from there, you evolve into other concepts like data ownership.
0: One thing that I'd like to touch on, and this was discussed in your podcast as well, is open banking with a capital O and capital B versus a lowercase o and lowercase b. Can you
1: kind of touch base on what's going on there? Ah, uh, My good friend, Mr. Cardinal uh, from season one, uh, the chairman of FDX. Yeah, it's a great line. I've used it myself with full accreditation to Don, of course. And what he's referring to is sort of the point I made In the last answer, there are many who equate open banking with regulation, with the idea that there is a legal framework, a piece of legislation that says, hey, banks, you don't own this data. You have to allow consumers to control how it's shared and allow them to move it between financial institutions easily. That's what happened in Europe. The legislation was called the Payment Services Directive 2, PST2, similar in the UK, similar in Australia and other regions. There are indeed regulatory pushes to drive banks to adopt the standard for the secure exchange of data. That's what Don calls capital O, capital B. And the reason that it's important to make the distinction is there's also little O, little B. And that's sort of what Don is trying to build with FTX. What he means is you can create a compelling argument to adopt a common standard without any kind of regulatory compulsion or risk of penalty from government. You can get a financial ecosystem to adopt a common standard because it raises all boasts, because it's the best way for everyone participating in that ecosystem to innovate together and to ultimately drive the best consumer outcomes. And that's what he's banking on with FDX. And the user numbers don't lie. I think um, last last check, they were at something like 60 million user records uh, shared through the FDX standard. So despite there not being a regulatory push in North America, FDX continues to make strides as a common standard for the secure exchange of financial data. So that's what Don means by little O, little B. You don't need regulation to adopt open banking but it helps. And
0: one thing that you had briefly mentioned, and I would also like to jump back on, was PSD2, the Payment Services Directive Revised. Is that something that has been big in open banking's history? Can you kind of touch more on that?
1: Oh my gosh, yes. Uh, You can't really talk about open banking without talking about the Payment Services Directive. That's where open banking really began. You could argue about things like little O, little B, but the fact is the first time the discussion around whether banks own their customers' data really happened in force was in European legislatures where they were talking about the payment services Directive to. That was the first time that a whole financial ecosystem was affected by a piece of legislation that said you have to adopt a common standard. And ultimately, that's what led the rest of the world to go in a very similar direction. So the Payment Services Directive was really where this all began. And let's step back
0: and take a look at Mr. Al Savant. Why are you so passionate about these open banking initiatives?
1: (laughs) So I think part of it is that I've been at this integration thing for such a long time that I like the idea sorting a bunch of it out with a common standard. I've been in the trenches of projects where two different banks or a bank and a company like Google are trying to talk to each other through APIs. And oftentimes, almost always, the APIs are sort of incoherent, difficult to use. You end up spending tons of resources to try and get these projects to work. So I guess the, the nerd in me really loves the idea of a common technical standard to solve these kind of problems. But also, the consumer in me, the person who uses banking services on an everyday basis, sees the potential to be able to do more with my money, to invest it more intelligently, to save it more effectively, and to add a type of mobility so I can pay people more easily, buy more things that simply isn't possible in today's closed environment. A lot of people sometimes argue that open banking is overly complicated. And what exactly do you mean move financial data around? I really don't think it's that complicated. Imagine that you pull out your cell phone and you start an app that shows you not just one bank's bank accounts, but all your bank accounts together in one place, no matter where you happen to hold them. And if you want to move money from a bank account in one bank to a bank account or a fintech on the other side, you simply use your finger to drag some money from one to the other. And this just works. You need to be offered a credit product. You tap a few more times. This calls another API from a loan institution, and you're issued a loan, perhaps for a very small amount. This kind of stuff is not only easy to understand, but in many parts of the world, a reality. What open banking aims to do is to standardize all this stuff. So those very basic things become commoditized, become easy. And that allows all sorts of new innovators to build on top of these basic functions. So I'm excited about it for nerd reasons, uh, that it really finally allows for the proper stitching together of the different players in the financial ecosystem and i'm excited as a consumer because of the value i'm going to get out of it
0: right now there are places that are already adopting those applications as you had just talked about a sort of app where you're able to go and find different loan management systems or and that that's available in china right now right they have wechat
1: correct Correct, Uh, WeChat and Alipay have really become the two dominant platforms for enabling these kinds of use cases, what you could broadly call embedded finance. Right. Yeah, I think as soon as they, it becomes widely
0: accepted, I'd, we're going to talk about this in a little bit, but I think once it becomes widely accepted in Canada or North America in general, you're going to have people more accepting of it, just kind of in the sense of like cryptocurrencies, right? I would say five years ago, I had no idea what cryptocurrencies were, and I would probably say 90% of the population didn't either. And now there's this huge explosion in adoptions and startups, and it, it's just going to be a snowball effect, I think.
1: Absolutely. And you've hit upon really the larger battle that's happening under our feet, the total disruption of the financial sector. It bears taking a slightly closer look at what's happening in China relative to what I defined as open banking. Indeed, the use cases that I described are available today in China, but they wouldn't really qualify as true open banking, not The capital O capital B version or the lowercase o lowercase b version because that magical word standardization in the case of China while you have this incredible utility ultimately that utility only exists in two closed ecosystems WeChat and Alipay there is no common open shared standard that anyone can just adopt and become part of this ecosystem in fact If you wanna be a player, like a loan issuer in this ecosystem, you have to build a kind of mini app that will plug into the WeChat environment and the Alipay environment respectively. Sort of like you were building apps for two different app stores. And that's a fair analogy. WeChat and Alipay are sort of the financial services equivalent of a Google and an Apple. It's no coincidence that you see those big players in the West try and move into this space as well. The word you'll often hear associated with this is super app. This idea that through a single provider, you're gonna get not just search and taxi service, but everything all in one spot, including banking services right there inside a single app. So while China has very much demonstrated the destination that many regions are trying to get to this world of embedded finance, they've done it in a relatively closed way. A way that Western tech giants are trying to replicate, but a way that open banking is sort of the antithesis to. Open banking says, let's create that common open playing field, sort of like the internet that everyone can play on, and then build on top of that. So while we're heading for a similar destination, open banking is really something a little different. It's trying to recreate those same use cases, but in a way that doesn't allow any single player or a couple of players to dominate. So in your view, who
0: are the corporations or countries for that matter that are major players in this open banking movement?
1: You can't really identify leaders in the space again without talking about Europe. Uh, PSD2, as I said, is where this started. So they were out in front with their Berlin Group standard. But it's become a little fractured and some of the goals they were trying to achieve They haven't gotten there yet. Meanwhile, in the UK, who adopted open banking at roughly the same time, made some choices that, in retrospect, were probably better than their European mainland counterparts and, as a result, really pulled ahead. They've got probably the healthiest, most mature open banking standard in the world today. Behind them is Australia, who is a unique case. While they don't have the adoption numbers that you're seeing – In the UK, for example, they bit off a much bigger piece of the pie. Rather than having legislation that talked about banking and open banking, they adopted a piece of legislation known as the CDR, the Consumer Data Right. And what made it different than other open banking initiatives was it was cross-economy right out of the gate, meaning this wasn't just about banking. This was about open banking, open insurance, open telecom, open government, etc. And they baked that idea right into their standard. So from a philosophical standpoint, it really is Australia who's thinking bigger than everyone else. And it's no coincidence that they're getting in fights with the likes of Google and Facebook. Finally, Brazil, where Axway has been active for the last several months, they really have shown the rest of the world what it means to execute on open banking. In the last year, they've gone from virtually zero other than some legislation and timelines to a fully operational standard, now publishing phase three APIs, integrating with their real-time payment rail PICS, which is QR-based, and executing, executing, executing. A true demonstration of what can happen when industry and regulation join hands in a common goal set the stakes high and and go into open banking together. Uh, Brazil is a true example to everyone else.
0: And I couldn't help but notice Canada, I didn't hear their name at all. Whereabouts <laughs> are we in that
1: situation? So, unfortunately, not quite as cooperative or aggressive as what we see in Brazil. However, Canada has been discussing open banking for the last few years. Indeed, when I was at CIBC, I was our technical head of open banking, attending many consortium meetings and discussions with all the players around how we could adopt it. That was a couple of years ago, so needless to say, the players in Canada who are anxious to see open banking move forward are getting a little impatient. I try and discuss that with some of the guests on my show, like Senator Colin Deacon. So it was very encouraging during the last election to suddenly see a lot of radio silence turn into election policy, where all three parties in some way, shape, or form pointed at open banking, identified it as a destination for Canada, talked about why it's important. And of course, they had policy differences, but they all started talking about this idea of letting bank data be moved around, getting rid of screen scraping. There were even pieces on the CBC that for the first time really, talked about open banking in a way that anyone in the street could understand what it was and what it meant. The Liberals have since gotten elected. They published a report during the election cycle that talked about bringing open banking to Canada in 2021, but unfortunately, since the election, they have not acted aggressively on moving that program forward me and several colleagues in Canada are really hoping that happens. I'm a board member of the OBIC, the Open Banking Initiative Canada, a nonprofit that aims to drive open banking forward here in Canada. And uh, we're working with uh, our network every single day to drive the issue, uh, ask the government why uh, they aren't moving more aggressively and try and help them along. Uh, really in the spirit of joining hands, right? I want to stress that The OBIC, and me personally, don't see this as an us versus them, as small banks and fintechs versus the big Canadian banks, or even regulators versus the big Canadian banks. The only way this is going to work is the way it worked in Brazil, which is if we join hands, realize that this is going to raise all boats and do it together.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm excited for you guys to take on that initiative. I think that's something that definitely needs to happen. And it, it's something that has already happened. I think that's what the viewers, as well as everybody who is involved in banking, which is going to be just about every single one of us, needs to understand is that Brazil has done this. We can do this too. There is an option that is in clear sight. Ail's passion really shines through when he discusses the open banking movement. Not only is he excited about the notion of a common shared standard for the secure exchange for financial data, but he can also see the benefits of this revolution through the eyes of an everyday consumer. He noted that the open banking movement will bring so much more value to the consumer compared to the traditional legacy systems, which is something we can all be excited about at the end of the day. However, some countries are further ahead than others in terms of adopting this new model. As A.L. mentioned, Areas like Europe and Australia have made much more progress in terms of implementing open banking regulations, as evidenced by the advent of PSD2. Here in Canada, though, things are moving a bit more slowly. But AIL is optimistic about the future of open banking in the country and on an international scale, as long as the major players find a way to work together and find synergy within the ecosystem. And one thing that I would like to ask is then what can the average person do to get involved
1: and help this initiative? I think the most important thing is for Canadians to know that there is something better than what we have today. And indeed for anywhere where there isn't the ability to easily manage your money and move it between institutions and move your data between institutions, you should know that there are completely secure ways to do that, ways that are, I assure you, much more secure than what the average bank uses today for their walled garden. They should know that in that world where data is portable and you can trace it and you can move it around, you can reuse it however you see fit for you as the owner of that data, suddenly a whole world of possibilities opens up, not just in terms of how you tip split or round up your savings or pay folks that you deal with on an everyday basis, but how you run your small business, how you deal with your retirement investments, how you submit your taxes, how you manage your pension, how you get your paycheck. All of this stuff is absolutely going to get affected by the sharing of this data. Knowing that these things are possible, I would recommend that you explore the options that are out there in whatever region you're in. Uh, Even if they are based on closed systems and not based on standards yet, become familiar with what those fintechs are offering. Take a look at those neobanks who are trying to give those large incumbents a run for their money and demand more from your banks and your regulators in terms of making open banking happen and, and letting your data be free. Right.
0: It benefits everybody. I would, the last episode I had was with Sarah Zanbergen and of EQ Bank. And if we do have those banks that are challenging those legacy banks, it, it could push fees down, which is beneficial to absolutely everybody. One of the things that I would like to jump on then is what are some of the issues we currently have with those legacy banking systems? Are they adopting APIs or are they still kind of in the archaic mode?
1: I think that Large banks very much find themselves at a bit of a crossroads because they are used to these walled garden models. For decades, they've talked about the notion of wallet share or products per customer. The idea that if I'm a customer of a given bank, they want all of my banking to go through them. In fact, there are rules in place here in Canada that prevent cross-sellings just so banks can't lean into this idea even more. But as we move into this increasingly digital, increasingly heterogeneous world, you can't be all things to all people. There, there's just no practical way that a single financial services provider is going to give you everything you need. There are just too many unique options. You mentioned cryptocurrency earlier. That's a, a small one out of a field of options that now exist out there to help you save, invest, pay, etc. So if you can't be all things to all people, then that turns your perspective around a little bit and you start to focus on the customer. Now, a lot of banks have done this. This is a long and difficult cultural transformation, but banks like CIBC have done this. Rather than focusing on what's good for CIBC and good for different product lines, they've shifted the focus to what's good for the customer. And this is very much... The right thing to do. Of course, I want my bank to think about me, not about them. The thing is that if you're really trying to do what's right by me, then are you going to offer me better advice and better decisions if you can see only what I do with your bank or if you can see what I do with every bank? Now, if you see what I do with every bank... And your answer is, yeah, that helps. Now I get to know you better. Now I can offer better insights and advice. Well, how much better would that advice be if you could now see everything about me my healthcare details, my traffic uh, details, how often I go to the gym, uh, perhaps even my hobbies? Now, I want to stress this world of open data is one that you control. Consumers themselves decide which data is shared, with whom, for how long, and they can turn it off at any time. This data sharing is traceable and completely secure. It is that plumbing that open banking hopes to put in place, which begins with money and then moves to these other data sets. Now, banks are now struggling with this new reality of true customer centricity, which has to be based on the broadest possible view of the customer that they can get. Oftentimes, this undercuts their traditional business models, which are based on this concept of wallet share or products per customer. So how do they make that transition from walled garden to the open future? That is the biggest challenge that uh, large banks have to face. So it's not so much a, well, let's say part of it is a systems challenge, but it's much larger than just a systems challenge.
0: If you could briefly touch on this, what are some of the changes that we're currently seeing that are helping to facilitate this, as you said, customer centricity?
1: I think that because in this low interest rate environment, margins on traditional banking products are squeezed to such a level that banks have been forced to find other avenues to generate revenue Anyway, never mind digitization and open banking and so on. There just isn't the margin in the interest rates to be able to make significant revenue. So you start charging fees. Now, the problem with fees is as people become more savvy, as more and more legislation comes out that targets that specifically, this idea of bank transparency and uh, making sure that fees don't get out of control, even that piece of revenue, starts to become under threat. So you've threatened my spreads on my margins for for lending and and, uh, deposits. You've threatened my fee business. Well, what's left? Suddenly banks find themselves moving more and more towards the services side, towards insights, advice, money management, and building trusted relationships with their customers. So I don't think that idea of customer centricity is especially new to the large banks out there. They, they've seen the writing on the wall, and they understand that they have to leverage their scale to get into that relationship-based business, the advice and insights business. I think what they're grappling with, as I said earlier, is logically the more data I have, the better I'm going to be at that business. So I have to start to tear down these walls. Totally.
0: One thing that I think is worth mentioning is I heard this on your podcast is that the open banking, capital O, capital B has the potential to unbundle overdraft fees. And I saw a statistic on the news the other day that there were banks taking in billions in overdraft fees. And if those overdraft fees were still in the pockets of consumers, I think that helps the economy Greatly, especially when it's in the fact of billions of dollars. And also the point that open banking could stop the pointless paperwork for mortgages or loans. I think that's one thing that when I was applying for a mortgage, there's so many pieces of paperwork that you have to go through just to potentially buy a house.
1: So let's go through those in turn. The first was overdraft fees, which you could broaden into fees in general. If you accept that banks are moving into the trusted relationship business, then how much are you going to trust an organization who keeps dinging you with $2 here, $5 there, $45 here? It's just not the kind of behavior that you expect from your trusted partner. Add to that that in many regions, the the capital O, capital B side of open banking has mandated that banks are completely transparent with their product books, that they publish APIs that tell you exactly what they sell, what the margins are, how they sell it, and so on, essentially allowing you to compare products from different institutions on a level playing field. Even in the absence of standards that do that, you've got organizations like BorrowWell in Canada that allow you to compare products. So I think in this increasingly digital transparent world, often driven by regulation to that effect, hiding these fees from your consumers and expecting them to eat them and still be your friend is is a losing proposition. So those fees are going to continue to decrease, continue to become commoditized. Digital players are going to come along and offer you ways around those fees, in particular in the payment space. So banks are getting that. As I, as I said earlier, they're starting to understand that the, the days of the fee-based revenue model are numbered. And that brings me to the second point you made, the paperwork required for a mortgage and indeed paperwork in general. This is related to the other fees thing in the sense that there's only so much consumers are going to be ready to tolerate in a, in a digital world. They're not going to tolerate $45 a trade and they're not going to tolerate 20 pages of paper to get a mortgage. Especially now in light of COVID, which by some estimates has accelerated digital transformation efforts by something like a decade, the idea of me going to a branch to fill out a ream of paper to get a mortgage is not just impractical and annoying. It's impossible, right? It's literally (laughs) not allowed. So banks in the face of COVID and this digital acceleration that it's caused have come to realize that it's not... 40% or 50% of your services that you have to have in your app, it's 100%. Like if you don't have it in your app, you may as well not even offer it. And uh, that is going to lead first to digitization, the taking of paper-based processes and turning them into digital equivalents, but ultimately into true digital propositions, this idea of digitized to digital, where you're not replicating a paper process. You're trying to create something better, faster, easier. And if you look at the onboarding race that's happening in Canadian institutions, in other words, how quick and easy is it to open an account, you see this happening in full effect. But I'll say it again, there's a big difference between that kind of stuff happening inside a silo and that kind of stuff happening on the back of a common standard.
0: We've been jumping back and forth, I know, from the future to the past, the future to the past. I would like to talk more a little bit about Europe. On your podcast as well, I can't remember exactly who was the guest that you had, but they had mentioned that UK implements open banking using a single API standard that connects to 90% of the UK market. Now, that seems like a big statistic to me. Is that something that's going
1: to be possible on this side of the world? Oh, absolutely. If the word is possible, it's possible today. These standards are real. They exist. If Canada wanted to, or if the U.S. wanted to, they could absolutely adopt one and get the whole market to connect to each other using that common standard. The word possible, somewhere along the line, became almost inappropriate because it's real. It's happening now. So this isn't a a theoretical thing. Would it be possible, and maybe this is what you meant, from a political standpoint? There's no question that North America is taking a more market-driven approach. It's worth noting the differences between what's happening in the US and Canada, and it's worth noting the different markets. In Canada, we do have that European-style concentration of market activity inside a handful of banks. In the US, not so much. Yes, they have large dominant players, but they also have thousands of community banks and state banks that hold their own. And a lot of that has to do with the political structure of the United States relative to Canada. But it's a very, very different market. It makes sense for the US to follow a more market-driven approach given their structure. I would argue perhaps makes a little less sense here in Canada given our structure. But all the same, we're moving that way. And we're moving that way because ultimately consumers want it. There's another point we touched on that I'd like to come back to. You brought up China and I talked about how the Western tech giants are ultimately trying to emulate that walled garden approach to embedded finance. I think that's one of the major catalysts for open banking happening here in North America, in particular in the US. I think that the large banks down there are looking at these major technology players who are now in earnest trying to move into financial services and thinking to themselves, oh my God, what do we do? Do we really want Google and Amazon and Facebook to be the equivalent of WeChat and Alipay? Do we want to become beholden to them as the owners of the customer relationship and indeed the very screens that customers see when they bank? I don't think they do. So they're starting to see open banking as a kind of moat, as a way to level the playing field between them and these large technology players to set common rules that everyone has to follow if they want to play. So that's going to act as a major driver. And I think that, combined with increased consumer demand for innovative financial products, will ultimately move the U.S. and Canada towards open banking. I I don't think it's just possible. I think it's ultimately inevitable.
0: Right. There's a a symbiotic relationship between consumers and banks. If the banks don't have us, they don't have any sort of flows incoming to them. And if they keep charging these overdraft fees, they're going to continue losing consumers. So it has to move at the pace that you're talking and there has to be that transparency and that trust relationship in order for those big changes to actually happen.
1: Absolutely. And I I think it's even larger than most of the banks out there realize. There is indeed this scale where it's banks versus neobanks or fintechs, and that's very valid. Oftentimes these neobanks or fintechs, the starting point for their proposition is zero fees. So right there, they're sticking it to the banks saying, we know that you can offer this service at a level that you don't have to charge fees for it because we're doing it. So that's happening. But then at a higher level than that, at a sort of different scale, you have a larger battle. And that battle is between traditional money and the traditional monetary system, what some might call fiat, and this whole other world of money, what you might broadly call crypto or DeFi, or some would say Web 3.0. And it is this complete alternative to the entire economic system on which most of our lives run today. Now, I'm not trying to say that this is going to happen overnight, but clearly there are Ways to manage and move my money emerging that are radically different from the traditional ways that have existed for the last few centuries. Radically more digital, radically more open, radically more advanced. I like to liken this to torrents and peer-to-peer file sharing that ultimately led to the creation of iTunes and the music sector, that ultimately led, you could argue, to Netflix I think that banks have to realize if they're going to charge people $45 to transfer money from country A to country B, and it's going to take a week and might fail because you got something wrong on the piece of paper, that people are going to go looking for other ways to do that. And they don't have to look very hard before they find ways to do it for free in a completely reliable way and instantly. At the end of the day, people aren't going to care whether that way is based on your rules inside your walled garden. They just want to get the job done. And the only way that you're going to compete with them is by offering them legitimate alternatives to those kinds of open systems. That battle is going to take decades to play itself out, but it is indeed happening as we speak. And so with that taking decades, what are your predictions for the
0: next five to 10 years in the realm of open banking?
1: I think that you are going to see North America adopt standards. I think it's going to be through a cooperation of regulatory and market-driven activity. But you will see it happen because ultimately their systems will have to interoperate with the open banking systems that are emerging everywhere else. I think you're going to see the beginnings of an interoperability standard. So something that allows different open banking standards in different regions to be able to talk to each other. And of course, this is already happening, so it's sort of a weak prediction. You're going to see open banking standards expand into what's known as open finance, which is to say more and more financial instruments, such as investments, mortgages, pensions, and so on. And you're going to see the expansion of these standards into other sectors of the economy, such as energy, healthcare, government, etc., um, such as what you're seeing in Australia already. So these standards will continue to grow And uh, so will consumer awareness of the power of their data.
0: Well, Mr. Ale, I would like to say that it was an absolute pleasure having you on. If we need to reach you on social media or YouTube accounts, where can we find that?
1: Thank you very much for having me. You can reach me at MrOpenBanking.com or uh, on LinkedIn, where I'm very active. Uh, You can also find me at Axway if you'd like to talk about what we do there.
0: Awesome! It was a pleasure, Al. I really had really enjoyed having you on.
1: Likewise, that was a lot of fun. Uh, thanks so much for the opportunity.
0: Thanks for listening, everybody. What a great conversation with Al! I hope you'll be taking away some valuable insights about the future of open banking. Here are a few key lessons I'll be taking away from our discussion. At its core, the Open Banking movement is about the creation of a common shared standard for the secure exchange for financial data. From there, other elements like data ownership and embedded finance evolve organically. The Open Banking movement will ultimately serve to bring more value to the consumer. By seeking to standardize common finance functions, open banking practices will make it easier for the average person to take ownership over their finances and make changes at the touch of a button. In the future, the open banking movement will bleed into the finance world as a whole, as well as broader areas like energy, healthcare, government, and more. AIL predicts that these standards will continue to grow and evolve over time as more consumers begin to recognize the full power of their own data. Thanks for listening to Present Day Pioneers. I hope you learned something valuable from today's episode and that you're feeling inspired to forge forward boldly into a better future. I'm your host, Jackson Bokenfor. Be sure to tune in for the next episode and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast.